0: Hi, Nicole. Hi, Yuli. We were planning to go for a walk in the forest today, and uh, the weather didn't agree with us. So now we're here at home, in our respective homes. Indeed. Despite
1: of wanting to do something out of the box, we crawled back right into the box. So how is that we could be walking in the forest on a Monday
2: morning?
0: That depends on how you put it. That's either because we are freelancers with total control of our time or that we are unemployed with the same total control over our time.
1: So yes, tell me why are you a freelancer? How did you become a freelancer?
0: I have been a freelancer during most of my career and I started out as a freelancer. And I prefer being a freelancer. I guess I just started. So I'm I'm basically a developer most of the time. I do a lot of other things as well, like some product design and uh, product management and uh, helping teams, uh, development teams with their organization and process and other challenges. But I still consider myself primarily a, a developer, so... My first freelancing gigs were making uh websites for my friends' bands, and then i I kind of always had these gigs, side gigs, uh, even when I was a was an employer, some employee somewhere where I was just helping some friends build some stuff that they designed or stuff like that. So this was always my most more natural way of working, and I guess you are coming from the the opposite side right so you started out mostly being a, an employee or a team member and then found freelancer as you are calling right That's true yes i
1: remember when um i was doing my masters in service design uh, in milan the the good thing about that the school tried to link us up with professionals and you know try to already create this network that usually happens yeah maybe later, or, you know, it starts with your studies. And then as you go on, you meet more professionals and they try to encourage that. And anyway, so I met somebody who was already a sort of like a mature designer in his career. And I asked him, what is he suggesting me to do? How to start? And I remember his advice to to, till this day, we were out drinking some um, um, Negroni or some other wonderful Milanese (laughs) Cocktails at an aperitivo hour. And then he told me, You should probably first start working for your passion. And then once you run out of money, then you should start (laughs) and get a job that actually pays. (laughs) Uh, Because the other way around won't work. Because as soon as you start making money, you won't be able to just let that go. And I thought it was very funny what he and how he he put it. Uh, So that also, I guess, played a little bit into how it all went. Actually, I first started working for things that I was passionate about, or I tried to find jobs that I was passionate about, but I had no idea that I could be a freelancer or that even that's even a thing. And yes, then I was an employee for a while. And then you and I, we were partners at the company, which we were also running with many other um, co-owners and co-workers at that place. And once that ended for me partially because I decided to stay abroad because of a gig that I went there to do and then just decided not to come back. And this was pre-COVID, so the remote setup didn't exactly was fully acceptable. So we decided to part ways and that's where my freelancing started. Uh, Not because I wanted to, but I had no idea what I wanted to or how I wanted to do. And one week into my not sure what to do phase, I got a phone call from a friend in Italy at the time I was living in the Netherlands, uh, and so I got a call from Italy if I wanted to join them for a project, and I said, yes, of course, and uh, this was in 2017, and I've been a
0: freelancer ever since. So you were doing remote work before it was cool? We both were. Yeah. Yeah. I remember
1: as, um, when I started working on that project, how the whole team started experimenting how to make this an ideal setup. And I think there are so many different variations of remote work as well. Like at that time, it was not fully a distributed team, which I think was mostly the norm throughout COVID, but it was mostly me sitting somewhere or one person sitting. Far and then another, the bigger part of the team sitting in one spot, and we were trying to somehow balance that out. How can we be present and efficient at the same time?
0: Yeah, with a mixed team, I think it's even more uh, complicated to balance that out than having a full, fully remote team. Like if you do have some people who are sitting in an office, they will somehow end up being closer together and being having easier communication than the remote part of the team. So there are bigger challenges in a mixed team.
1: Absolutely. I agree. I agree. I mean, we did we did experiment with a few tools at the time. I remember we had that big screen installed in one of the rooms, and the idea was that we were using some kind of software that was taking pictures of every one of us sitting in front of our computers every <laughs> few minutes. So Right. So we can have this kind of like, who who is doing what? And the software allowed you to ping someone and start a chat briefly. Like it was sort of trying to recreate that situation when you were sitting next to somebody and then you can just, you know, nudge them. Hey, I have a question. And yeah, what was your experience of that? Period? Yeah,
0: that was fun. Uh, I kind of remember that I was the only one who was always using that and I, there were never anyone <laughs> Uh, who wanted to chat with me. So I was a bit sad about that, but I thought that that that's a great idea and I was always happy to find people there. Some people find it like a, a tool to being watched and uh, surveyed by their bosses. Uh, so people do have uh, some uh, issues with software like that, but I always enjoyed these kinds of connections. So,
1: yeah, I found it weird that a little bit weird that especially those people who it's going to sound prejudicial, which I don't (laughs) mean it to be, but especially people who work on the computer and with computer stuff, they were less eager to stay active in that space communication wise, right? Like I had expected that to happen, but it,
0: it didn't. So what kind of freelancing do you do? What do you call freelancing? So I, as I mentioned, I am mostly a, a software developer. So most of my freelance gigs were software development, web development tasks. I was usually working uh, either in a team, like there was a, a designer or someone who was uh, working with a client and pulled me in to help out with the with the development part of the project, or uh, directly with clients who had. Some other, uh, uh, either an internal team or some other freelancers who were designers. And I have been mostly working with uh, startups, like early stage startups, trying to figure out what they want to build and make it, make quick prototypes, test it with people and test it with users and then figure out their business based on the feedback. And I really enjoyed working with that, with those kinds of, uh, clients. So I think that's why I drifted towards like, trying to know more about product development in general, and figuring out how to build something that is actually uh, useful and actually gives value to someone. That was always important for me. So like the big picture, the value creation. And I, I think that's, that's what made our connection easier. Like I figure that you are also someone who enjoys working on uh, stuff that has some kind of value and purpose and stuff like that. I think we are both people who are
1: driven by creating value and have some kind of a helpful or useful impact. I think that may be a big driver for me in my freelance um, work or in my freelance status Ever since I started working with design, which by the way, I had no idea what it was when I started with, I remember when I applied for my studies, I thought, okay, I'm someone who is good at both like sciences and humanities, but I had no idea what the studies would be. I just thought, okay, this is something where I can create, but I can also learn something about engineering. They will push me to develop parts of my brain that other. Otherwise, I would be too lazy to do, you know, I will always sit on a Friday evening and take a book and read, or even I will always have the drive to write, but I will certainly never have the drive to just, you know, practice math or whatever. (laughs) And I thought, okay, I, I think I have the capacity, I just need a bit of a push so I can learn more about these things. And so when I started with these studies, of course, the whole world opened up and Oh, because I forgot to mention that I'm a designer <laughs>
0: talking about <laughs> <Right. laughs> our background. Yuri, so what, I... what kind of designer are you?
1: God, <laughs> yeah, that's the million dollar question. So on paper, I would be a product and service designer, but I work mostly with product and service strategy and very often trying to link product strategy with business strategy. So while earlier in my career, I started working, you know, at the end of the process. So I would get the hands down, the hand down on, okay, design this last bit of this and that, or I started also, I worked a couple of years in design research. So learned the it's and bits of that. And as time went on, it was sort of moving backwards towards the front part of this, you know, less certain part of design, which is the conceptual part and how it links with business needs and business interests as well. And luckily and unluckily, the past couple of years, design have become more common knowledge in, I think, many different fields uh, of business. And so the understanding of needing to hear the voice of the customer has become a thing. And so that is also something that I bring to the table uh,
0: to link it up with business and all that. So so what did you study to become this kind of, uh, this kind of designer. (laughs) So I started with industrial design
1: and I did an old school five-year degree of that. And in the meantime, I studied one year abroad in the Netherlands, uh, at the Eindhoven at the technical university of Eindhoven. And I want to highlight that because this was the first time when I had the chance to connect with With IT, basically, and with mobile technologies as such. This was back in the early 2000s, so there were no smartphones, right? We are talking 2004, (laughs) (laughs) so long ago. But our student exercise, or our students, we had an assignment, there you go. Um, And at the the time, the university had a connection, um, a collaboration with Vodafone. And the assignment was for us to research what's the future of mobile technologies using speech recognition. And mind you, this was the time when we were using Nokia phones and, you know, black and white screens and all that. And so that was a huge eye opener for me. What fantastic possibilities lie in design and just what we can put our hands on and turning back to the idea of impact. That's what it felt like. It felt like, oh my God, I just got the magic stick in my hand. This is something <laughs> what I want to do and I want to be the part of. So I think that's how sort of the love for design grew and grew and also the possibilities started to open up. So I studied there. I studied uh, <clears throat> industrial design in Budapest and then I did a master's in Italy in service design. These were the three studies that I did. And following that, I worked in different countries in different setups just to get a glimpse into the different sides of design. Yeah.
0: They were already teaching service design back then.
1: It's crazy. Like under that name. It is crazy, crazy, I think, to think. Even though looking back, I think that was really the dawn of service design, honestly. yeah, Like we were the second year of that master's studies okay. yeah and to to be honest <laughs> for many years after that nobody nobody on the um, on the market could do anything with that degree I mean I would try to go to different creative agencies and they were looking at me as if I was an alien like <laughs> I can see you are creative I can see you have talent but we have no idea what to use what to use you for so yeah it, it took me many 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 years to actually be able to work the thing that I studied. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so back to impact. Yeah, so that's how my drive for impact started and, and exponentially grew throughout the years. And when you and I met, we were brought together by this idea of a company that we can be co-owners of while we are also working in our jobs, right?
0: Right, yeah. So,
2: so
1: how did you get connected to that? So
0: yeah, this this company was founded on the the ashes of a pre-existing startup. So they had an original team and then they started to expand and they started to try to hire new people. And I think I was the first one who they tested their pitch on and it worked. Uh, I was interested in it because I have been freelancing back then as well. And their promise was that the parts of freelancing that I don't really particularly enjoy like selling myself finding clients the administrative part and stuff like that that's what they could be helping with like working in an organization has the advantages of having other people take care of these tasks but I could still uh keep my freedom in a way and keep my sense of ownership because the company was supposed to uh, work in a co-owned fashion and we uh, were making our, uh, we were making our decisions uh, in a flat structure called uh, Holacracy. And that was very exciting for me. Uh, It was, we learned a lot about management and self-management and, team roles and how to make roles explicit and how to make decisions in a distributed way. So I really enjoyed that part. Uh, And yeah, that's that's how they got to me. Uh, They sold Holacracy, absolutely, and I was very happy to join and try to shape this team and this company together. Uh, And then I met you, who was the first ever uh, service designer that I have ever seen in my life and uh, I was very happy to get to know that new level of abstraction that you brought to the table and as as you mentioned it, it was really interesting to see how design can reach beyond like just designing screens or even products and to see the connection you can make to business goals and strategy and stuff like that.
1: I remember I was also very impressed meeting you. I don't think I'd met a female senior developer before. And so I think in product design in general, especially back in the day, meeting other women was not necessarily common. I didn't meet many other women. I remember meeting you and you at first, I think, maybe also at second, is quite an introverted person. So you're not... Absolutely, yeah. (laughs) You're not going to be the first person who I will hear the voice of in the room, unless, unless, by the way, you have a role um, linked to you. Because then, for sure, I love that about you. Like, if there is a very well-defined space within which you have responsibilities and, and um, possibilities, or opportunities, then you will use that. And I love that about you. I think that environment allowed us to try working with each other in different setups and different type of projects. And it also allowed us to try working beyond our fields, as you mentioned that in different management roles and yep. because of the, the the specifics of Holacracy, we could try to work together in certain management roles. That also was really valuable for my own personal mm, improvement or progress and just understanding how business works and in the meantime, creating valuable friendships and connections to other people. So, so how do you feel that that experience enabled you to work in freelance?
0: So, as you mentioned, I am very happy in roles that are very explicit and uh, Holacracy basically gave me a lot of tools to what are the things that are important to make explicit and to pay attention to when you are defining a role or when you're defining a relationship uh, between an organization or in between organizations. And I really liked most of those, uh, uh, most of those tools that Holacracy gave us. And I continue to use that in my in my freelancing work as well. Like, uh, I know now that I really need a a clear role description and a clear description of what is expected of me and what uh, decisions can I make and what decisions uh, are uh, the domains of someone else. So if I can lay down those foundations with my clients, that will make our life so much easier during our work together. So for example, that's, that's something that I definitely still use from, from the Holacracy tool set. Uh, do you have anything like that, that you still enjoy using from what we learned there? Yes.
1: One of the tools that is, that is used for conceptual design development is, you know, a workshop setup, right? And especially since the rise of design sprints, it has become an even more specifically defined, I think, framework. But I remember even before that, uh, with the practice of Holacracy, I loved the framework for our meetings, like how, even though sometimes they were super frustrating because I felt like (laughs) they really (laughs) pushed us through a certain tunnel. But at the same time, it just made every meeting a lot more effective than I'd ever seen before. And it was fantastic to witness that, oh my God, that's possible. So if we try to stick with it, it will get us somewhere. It's not just going to be like sitting around forever and not getting anywhere and just wasting each other's time. So that's one thing that I I don't say that I can keep up because obviously it requires everyone's understanding and agreement that this is how a meeting is going to be done. But that's always what's sort of in front of my eyes. Like that's where we need to get to if we want to be efficient. I loved the idea that we could try us, try ourselves in different roles and how doing that with other people helped us reflect what those roles should be. So I I didn't feel alone executing a certain role without any feedback, without any help. And I thought that was super helpful. So I think that that has shaped greatly my understanding of what kind of roles need to be done for a business to be run successfully. And having that in mind, I think it reflects on how I try to run my own business and also when I work with others, what
0: I see about how they run theirs. Yeah, because freelancing basically means that you yourself are a business and you have to think about a lot more things than just doing the work and yes. talking with the clients and i think it it gave us a lot of uh, perspective into what exactly those other tasks are and what's the amount of other work that goes into managing a business even if it's just a one person business absolutely
1: and i think that's something that it might be spoken about but it's still somehow underestimated the time and the effort that needs to be put into other things but the work that you do for clients, just how much you need to invest into keeping your network going, trying to make sure that you are always in conversation with potential new projects. Because as a freelancer, you can always just lose a project from one day to another. Um, how do you represent yourself? A lot of things that I think our generation <laughs> may have more difficult experience doing. But what I mean is that since the appearance of social media, I feel that, and this is very much spoken about all over the place, that all of us are somewhat of a brand. Like the way that we are representing ourselves or that we are trying to present ourselves on those platforms, that no matter what you do is a curated presence. And maybe those who grew up having that from day one. They it it might be easier for them. I'm not saying they are more talented at it, but it is more natural for them to do. Yeah,
0: more natural. Natural.
1: And I don't find it supernatural. I of course I have a lot of fun with it time to time, but as something but as an activity to keep up and and think of myself as someone, something to be sold and presented. Is, is not an easy task.
0: Yeah, it's super hard. At least for me, it's like one of the hardest parts of, of being a freelancer and trying to find new job is just the fact that I am a product that needs to be sold. And that means that I have to put myself out there and have a, some kind of a presence on social media on, or anywhere where clients can find me. That's, that has always been my, the hardest part for me. And yeah, I am pretty bad at social media, to be honest. I don't think I have posted anything during the last year or two on okay. any kind of social media. So uh, I think I was mostly uh, relying on live events for these kinds of networking and selling myself part. And that was a, an easy thing for me. I was on an organize on the organizer team of many uh, meetups here and conferences and stuff like that, and that was somehow enough to build connections and to get work. Uh, but since this new world order, where we completely forgot how to uh, attend live events, uh, I just lost it, and it had a it had an effect on my freelancing gigs as well. Have you tried to make up for it in other ways? Uh, No, not yet. I mean, I tried to use platforms instead of real connections, like try to find work on Upwork and register on TopTal and all, all these kinds of services that are basically for this, like getting work without putting in the sales part. And even that I had absolutely no success with. I think all the clients that I have ever uh, found were, I, I got them through some kind of a human connection. Like I had some friend who is already there or who knows someone and they recommended me and that's how I got in each and every time. And uh, so I couldn't find a, a substitute for that. I haven't found it yet.
1: No, it has been the same for me, and I find that this sort of connection, the human connection that is there, you know it it represents a quality that I think is very hard to achieve in other ways, which is the mutual trust, that there is at least a seedling of trust via this kind of a recommendation or or this human connection. Right. And it goes both ways. It goes for, of course, the company gets a heads up about my work or my personality, or they already have some kind of an inkling of what they will get with working with me because of this person who is representing the idea of bringing me or you or, you know, a third party into that project. But it goes the other way around too. Like depending who that person is, who is inviting or who I'm talking to, it also means that, um, that I get some kind of an insight before I enter that space. And that also represents some kind of um, a hallway. It's like a
0: safety check before before entering a new company that you can also trust them to not be a traumatic experience.
1: Exactly. and And also just a chemistry check as well.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, sometimes it's not really the knowledge that, that goes, you know, in separate directions, but it's just the chemistry between those who, who collaborate. So I, 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 until this day, I cannot imagine that some kind of a portfolio sent online can represent
2: that. Right. Or any marketing
1: text that a company says about themselves will represent that.
0: Or any website with nice pictures, with smiling people can represent that. Mostly stock people, yes. <laughs> yeah. or yes. AI generated oh my god yes AI generated <laughs> true
1: there is one thing we haven't talked about I mean there are many things we haven't talked about but why are we speaking in English
0: you might have noticed that our accents are not not so beautiful We have, I mean I have a beautiful Hungarian accent for sure
1: we are sitting in Budapest, Hungary the both of us but it's not always been like this in fact it can be you know, depending on the time of the year or when we connect, which parts of the world we would be sitting at. And the reason why we picked English after some conversation on this topic was a lot to do with the environment in which we, I think, feel comfortable in and with which we hope to connect. I, I think it also goes for both of us, like most of my close friends. Can't speak Hungarian, they are from different parts of the world. Most of the professional connections that I've made throughout the different projects that I worked are from different countries of the world, and I would hope to have them uh, invited to this conversation and hear their opinion and hear their take on the whole topic as well so that's that's why the English that's why
0: right. yeah If I think about how who I would want to show this first. Those are people who don't speak Hungarian, so it's definitely a, a good decision to try to make this in English. Yeah. Have we talked about why we do freelancing? We talked about how we ended up doing that, but I don't think we have mentioned the why's. So why. So what was the what was your motivation to stick with freelancing?
1: I think initially I just enjoy the free part of freelancing, the freedom of the, the vast possibilities that can come and, and simply the right to be able to choose. And so in the beginning, it seemed to me, okay, freelancing means that I can do what I like to do, but it's only partially true. And, and since then, I found that maybe the part that is free in freelancing is much more about how I do the jobs that I do rather than what I do because of what we have been talking about, the difficulty or the challenges of finding new projects or simply how we do that, I find that I still invest a lot more of myself into how I execute a certain project rather than how I sell myself. So because of that, I think what I'm excellent at and what I enjoy very much is that part, but because of the lack of investment into how I sell myself, I really don't have much freedom in choosing what I do. Coming back to your question, I love to be able to do the work the way that I find most uh, ideal for the client and being able to, most often being able to go through with that. So I think when you're a freelancer, and especially in the type of job that I do being a consultant and working on product uh, strategy it is desired if not required from me to formulate constructive criticism so my job is actually to help them see their situation as is without the sugar coating and i think that job is very important for almost every company and that's the job that helps them grow that's the job that helps them fix their mistakes or the problems and And also my job is to help them fix that. But as soon as I would be sitting inside, that sort of a role is not anymore welcome. It's a lot harder for one reason or another for companies to hear any kind of criticism, whether that is constructive or not on the way how they operate. So as soon as you're on the inside, I feel, or my impression is that you're expected to execute what they say you have to execute. And no matter what, how you see that fits or doesn't fit into the system. And so I feel like if I can create the most value by being a system critic and also a support, um, that I can do best from the outside still. It doesn't mean that I can steer completely clear of internal politics because if, you know, there is no product that stands alone, there is no product that um, just a small group of people Unless it's a small group of uh, startup um, designs and develops, so you always will be somehow get involved with their internal communication. But when you are freelancing, I feel that you have a chance to positively impact that rather than trying to, you know find the tone of voice and do it yourself. So I think that's mostly f- why, for me. Yeah, and also because I have a chance to work for different industries, but we can talk about it later. Why is it for you?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think I can. I can only repeat you. So it's it's definitely it's twofold. Uh, when I'm working as a developer, uh, I can absolutely relate to uh, one of the things that you s- said. That uh, it's very important for me that I know best how to do the job that I am hired for and that I have the freedom to execute it as I see fit. And my experience so far is that that's easier to do as a freelancer where you have, uh, you can set clear boundaries around your work and say that, okay, so I know what uh, what are the best tools or what, how I want to organize my work. And I know that best because I know myself better than how you you know me. So this is how I will do this work. And that's, Uh, that's about trust that we have talked a lot about if the client trusts me to do my work the best uh, then I can then I can really bring the best that they need and I feel that uh, in some organizations uh, that trust is not there towards employees and sometimes employees can be really uh basically infantilized in their positions and they have those kinds of uh, structures around them that kind of force them to do their best work and that they don't leave room for them to really understand how they can provide the best work. And that's how, that's what I like to avoid uh, being a freelancer and, uh, On the other side, when I'm not doing development work, but helping a team in other ways, like uh, figuring out how to make a development team more effective or a product more useful for people, then it is very useful to have an outside perspective. And my outside perspective can be the thing that gives the most value to a team because I'm not sitting there. i'm I'm not used to their existing solutions, and I can more easily think outside the box than who have been working on something for years and years. And that can that can absolutely bring value to a team, uh, especially if I don't have to deal with the internal politics that you have mentioned, yeah.
1: what you were just saying, I've f- I've seen that too I, when you said they in, infantilize is that a word yeah
0: mm-hmm.
1: love it okay <laughs> so yeah when you when you mentioned that I feel that it can very it can very easily happen that people who work internally they aren't anymore or in certain situations are not anymore um evaluated by their competences but rather driven by some other internal interest and that's when I think a knowledge sort of gets set against management and then they are unable to really provide their best. There's another thing we talked about, impact and values. And one thing that I love that I don't need to worry about being an employee is climbing the career ladder because that's something that has never, ever motivated me. And that said, doesn't mean that I wasn't motivated to do more or create more value again. But yeah. the thing that motivated me was always about the subject or what I was working with rather than what my title was.
0: But then how do you, uh, how do you feel progress in the work that you do? It's so easy to feel progress when you're inside of an organization and you can amass your titles and get a raise and get a bigger team or stuff like that. But how do you do that when you're freelancing?
1: Yeah, I think that is a big challenge of being a freelancer. How do you see yourself improve, right? How do you see yourself progress? For me, for a long time, I had these different ideas of what kind of projects I wish to do or what kind of job within those projects I wish to do. And the more complex, the more international, the more, um, yeah, value-driven they were, I thought that's how I was going forward. Initially I'm tasked with a smaller task and then the, the closer I get to the fire, the, the more trusted I am with big questions, big challenges. That's where I saw my satisfaction coming from. But the truth is, what do you do when you, when you have accomplished that? How do you, what is a career ladder for a freelancer? Yeah. What, what, what is it for you?
0: (laughs) Oh, I have no idea. Absolutely. I, I did feel stuck, uh, in my freelancing. I did feel that I needed something to show for, uh, as I have been working with startups for most of the time, well, you know, uh startups come and go and there is a very small chance that they will actually make it and uh, it's really hard to uh, work on something that will at some point reach many people and be impactful when you're working with startups. So I didn't really have a lot of that. I did have some startups that I worked for that got acquired and made uh, did their startup success and stuff like that but still that wasn't. Uh, that didn't feel like progress for me. So uh, my attempt to feel that progress was to uh, basically to become an employee again and to tie the knot with one of my clients and to climb the career ladder in there, because that was, it seemed like an easy way to feel that progress that I am doing something uh, and I'm doing it better than 15 years ago when I started. Uh, so I, started as a developer and then became the leader of the development team. And then I became head of product. And uh, even at that position, I was absolutely not happier with my work than before. Uh, I was not doing the job that I liked anymore, because I was just sitting at day long meetings and workshops. And uh, I was engaging in internal politics that I was really bad at. And uh, so it didn't really work out for me. <laughs> That's why I have a lot of free time again. So I still have no idea. My next next uh, best guess is that it just doesn't matter that I am doing something better or more or bigger. And what actually matters is just walking in the forest with our dogs. And that's something that I actually enjoy doing and that actually can fulfill me. So why, why force it? You
1: know, I, have been also reflecting on this in the past couple of months when I was going through a burnout, whether I made the right choic- choices, because what you said you worked for startups and they did their startup success and the way that i was picking my projects it never really had anything to do with labels like when i look at these platforms that you mentioned top and other yeah the social media uh, marketplaces for talents and you see that there are people with big labels next to their names and i'm not able to do put that next to my name because that was really not the primary the primary reason why I picked the project or why I said yes to a project or not. For instance, I've been, I've been working for a local company for three years on a bicycle production company. And I've been really proud of that job simply because they are a, an SME, a small and medium sized company, but they are the oldest bicycle brand in Hungary. And I feel that we have achieved enormous success from their perspective, right? How they have developed Product strategy, how they changed a lot of ways, how they operate. And I find that very satisfactory. I find that a huge success. But if I put that brand next to my name and I would like to, (laughs) I would like to uh, have that seen as proof of the quality of my work that will never be represented in an international environment. And even if I mention some of the international companies that I've been working for, they are not you know, the big four, the big 10 or whatever. Yeah, I feel, I find that
2: there there may not be
1: a map drawn in front of us that we can point a finger at. Okay, this is the road that we want to take. So how can we have a life that keeps us happy by enables us creating value, also uh, enables us to have
2: a job that pays our bills and keeps our work relevant. Do you have a plan? Do you have a next step towards it? I
1: think I want to work a little bit on the what part now. As in, I would like to think a little bit about what kind of projects I want to work on and find those instead of waiting for those to find me. So I I started writing about my experiences online. And I would also hope that we keep talking about our experiences, and we can talk to many other people as well who we have worked with to to sort of create this space of conversation. We wanted to we wanted to start this podcast to have an honest conversation about product development, sort of a counter initiative to the "how to do this in five points" kind of <laughs> clickbait, right? Right.
0: Yeah, I get them immediate anxiety attack if I open LinkedIn, because I just, I can't deal with that kind of communication anymore. It's just too much. There must be people out there who would be okay with talking about their experiences and our challenges and stuff like that, while also not sounding like that.
1: I would hope so, yes. Each of of those posts and articles seems like they want to resolve every problem of our life in like five lines. People offering solutions in those posts somehow try to avoid actually investing all the time into learning about the whole area which they are writing about. Like if I was to write a post about these are the five things that you have to do if you want to fix this such and such and such. I can guarantee that if you read my, whatever I write, you will not be able to fix that thing in those five points. (laughs) You will need somebody who can help you do that, or you will need to invest time or money into either learning that thing for real or having someone on board to help you with it. So this is all just fake help. And I want to provide real help. I want to be there and somehow, okay, let's pull up the curtain and show what's behind the scenes really. This is how it goes. And if anybody wants to design something, if anybody wants to fix a problem or innovate, this is what they need to do and prepare to do to get there. And I, in despite of the internet being flooded with content about
2: product design, I still feel that that's missing. Are there any myths?
0: about freelancing that we want to talk about still? We already kind of mentioned one, how much uh, extra work is included. when we are talking about freelancing, that there are a lot of other tasks that you have to constantly keep thinking about. And it's not just about doing the work and getting paid way more than an employee. I think that's that's kind of one of the biggest myths is that we're just there to get our bigger paychecks for the same kind of same amount of money uh, for the same amount of work that an employee also can do. Yeah, let's talk about our income. Let's talk about <laughs> money.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I I have come across with that argument a bunch of times, and the. The first year when I got that call from Italy, if I wanted to join, I had no idea how much I should work for. Because before it was always a given. They they offered me something. I had kind of a ballpark estimate in my head and that's it. But as a freelancer, it, it came with a lot of new questions. Okay, what am I going to do if I don't have work? What am I going to do if I get sick? How am I going to invest into my own education. And so when I got that call, I, I remember sitting down and I made a calculation. I tried to in, in, you know, put in there everything that before I never even had to think about. And that created the baseline for how I started negotiating for myself. And I think that's a big part that those people who have never freelanced don't see or, or don't even think about. What is your experience with it?
0: Yeah. And, uh, and it's not just about money. It's, it's also about your time. Like you can't promise a 40 hour work week when you also have to do all your administrative work and, uh, to do, do the sales for yourself. If in the case of that, uh, client, just suddenly disappearing and try to keep all the calls in the fire at the same time and and all that other other work that you have to do so it's not just it's not just uh it's not just more expensive it's also it also takes more money <laughs> it takes more uh, time
1: yeah but at the same <laughs> time i also see freelancing a wonderful opportunity for both parties i mean I think for us, we talked about a few things that come with freelancing that we we prefer doing this way. But I also think that if I think about how many different industries I have worked for in the past 15 years, it's a very colorful bunch. And I don't think I could have done that otherwise. Of course, I would have gained something else. It's maybe like a similar conversation to those who you know, who live in a relationship, who live in one relationship (laughs) throughout their lives and those who don't, like we will never know each other's experience how it really is. But I think, especially since COVID, how the employment market started diversifying and with all the pros and the cons that come with it, I find that companies also have gained a wonderful opportunity to have access to talent, various talents and all around the world. So they have a chance to now buy knowledge, even for a short, shorter period of time, just to try how they can work with it. And I think at the same time, it creates a wonderful opportunity for that knowledge to present itself. What can it do for a certain industry or a third or a certain player? Um, And, on a big, on an even bigger picture, I think freelancing can play a wonderful role in somehow being this agent, these agents who travel across the economy, the different players of the economy and bringing best practices from one to another. I'm not talking about um,
0: <laughs> professional espionage, right? <laughs> no, it's more like the cross-pollination of ideas. Yes. It's basically all the upside of working with a job hopper without the uh, downsides of of it, because it is clear that they will work there for a shorter period of time, but they can bring in all their very diverse uh, knowledge and experience. Absolutely. I wish somehow
1: companies would be more accommodating to this kind of a workforce that is more of a mixed kind which could be beneficial for, for all of
0: us, really. What, <laughs> what was your most positive experience while freelancing? Um,
1: I think I mentioned it. The most, the most positive thing for me has been just this wonderful, diverse uh, world that I managed to experience and the possibility to see into... The different ways how the world works and being able to make sense of that. How, <laughs> when I was working for a telecommunication company, a communications company, and all the things I learned from the engineers, what they could do if they were allowed legally, that just scared the shit out of me. But it's also <laughs> fantastic to know. Or now that I understand how certain. How healthcare um, professionals' education is driven by different pedag- pedag- pedagogy, pedagogical uh, directives is fascinating to see just how different approaches we can take to learn. Or to know how robotics are robotic arms that uh, can be used to operate you are produced and what kind of security measures they take to build those things in a in the production line, I think is, is fascinating. So I feel that my world is very colorful and it just, it just goes to show that despite of me sitting in Budapest in a room, looking outside, seeing a certain type of nature is really just one perspective and that there are so many other
2: wonderful ones. So I'm really grateful for, for having gained this
0: experience. So let's hope that uh, next time we can check another uh, perspective from the middle of a forest or uh, the side of a field watching our dogs run around. And then we can continue this conversation from there. Absolutely. Let's let's find new perspectives in the next
1: conversation. Let us know topics that you want to hear about, especially around freelancing or product design. We are happy to hear that. See you again. Hear you again next time. Hear you next time. Okay? Ciao. Bye. Today's podcast was recorded on Obuda Island, produced by Aniko Fejes and Yuli Mata, edited by Yuli original music by white hot from freebeats.io thank you for being with us today looking forward to have your company the next time around bye